as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word church. Church, what sort of image? Now, the most instant and obvious image for many people is a building, a certain kind of building, maybe a traditional stone building uh, with a spire or a steeple, or if you're from the United States, a wooden, clabbered, covered building, perhaps painted white, with a lovely blue sky in the background. Towns and villages in Britain are littered with such church buildings. Some of them are quite pretty. And we find ourselves talking about buildings as if they are churches. We say things like this. Okay, you've got to go down Wilmslow Road and turn left at the church. Ever said something like that? Turn right at the pub, pub left at the church. Or we might say something like this. Isn't it a shame that that church is being turned into flats? But was it a church? Not according to the Bible. The New Testament teaching about a church never identifies the church with a, a particular physical building. The New Testament describes the church in lots of different ways. Here's some of them. The family of God, the household of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, but never as a building. So I've personally found it helpful to train myself to refer to church buildings as church buildings, to remind me of this fact. Others would regard me as a pedantic nerd. <laughs> now, maybe some of you didn't think about a building so much as a, as a large organization. You know, what is the church? And you thought of the Church of England, or the Methodist Church with a capital M and a capital C, or the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you're getting closer, but not close enough. Because, again, these big organizations 
are not themselves a church, although they have many churches in them. Holy Trinity Platt is a church. TCC, Trinity Community Church, is a church. St. Clement's Openshaw is a church. But the Church of England is a denomination. So it really should be called the D of E. Only the Duke of Edinburgh got there first. So what is a church? Now, we're going to spend the next six Sundays looking at the Bible's teaching about church. What it is, what it's for, and what to do with problems and conflict within it. Why are we doing this? Now, the short answer is that the church matters to God. It matters immensely to him. It is incredibly important. And so it should matter to us. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church in a place called Ephesus in what we call modern-day Turkey. And he says this amazing paragraph. And I'm going to read it, but try and, try and listen to the emphasis. I pr he's praying for them. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you, that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power of God is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but the one to come. Now listen to this. And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. Because if you're listening, you should have thought, what? God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, two days ago, it was Valentine's Day. Maybe you received a card. <laughs> Maybe you wrote a card. We had a couple of cards floating around in our house. Of course, one of the questions teenagers ask is, are you going to write these three little words? I love you. <laughs> I won't say what anyone wrote on any cards in our house. But there's three little words in Ephesians 1 that should make our hair stand on end. God did all these things. He, he raised Jesus from the dead and placed him over, over everything for the church. Three little words. See, the church really matters to God. It's incredibly important to him. Therefore, it should matter to us. And you know, there's a lot of confusion about church, what it is what it's for, how we should relate to it. So we want to try and address that over these next six weeks. I've got a quote here from a great pastor called John Tyndall. It's my dad. He said, that, he wrote, said this, I want to suggest to you that the church is the best place to belong. By that I mean there is such as the importance and value which the great God places upon the church that to belong to the church is the most important thing you could belong to. And to have no place in the Christian church is to be missing something you will regret for eternity. <sighs> so let's begin. We're going to start today with maybe the most foundational definition of the church. You ready? The church is the people of God. The people of 
God. And that's what the Apostle Peter teaches. Melissa just read it for us. You notice he says, uh, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And in this letter, Peter, who's writing to, what, again, what we call Turkey, uh, to a very small group of Christians, small little churches scattered around in different places, uh, they're, they're, they're in the middle of a context that's very hostile to them in most cases. And he paints this incredible portrait of the identity that's given to Christians. He says uh, in, in chapter 2 here, verse 9 to 10, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. See, Peter is getting his readers to, to rethink who they are. He's getting them to rethink their identity in this hostile environment. Earlier on in the letter, he's told Christians that they have a new birth. Literally, that when you become a, a Christian, God causes a new life to come within you. You're born again by the Spirit of God. You become a new kind of person that the world has never seen. A new life given by God. And then earlier on in chapter 2, he gives this description of Christians as living stones being built together into an amazing, beautiful temple. So here there is a build, image of a Christians as a building, but it's not a physical one. It's we're all bricks in the wall. Any Pink Floyd fans out there? Just another brick in the wall. But this, in this case, it's a good one because we're being built into this beautiful temple in which God lives and which gives glory to him. And now he says, you are the people of God. The world may accuse you of all sorts of things, but you must live a life of glorious dignity. So I'm going to take what I think are the three main points of Peter's message uh, in this text, which are the identity of the church, the message of the church, and the lifestyle of the church. The identity, the message, the lifestyle, who we are, what we say, and how we live. And I've got basically my entire uh, sermon is, is 12 words. Um, it's not just another 12 words, but that's, <laughs> that's the, the headings. You thought you were going to get home early. Uh, so the chosen people of God, declaring his praises, living conspicuously good lives. The chosen people of God, number one. Declaring his praises, number two. Living conspicuously good lives. Firstly, the chosen people of God. Peter wants to talk to people who are suffering. Uh, they are people who are battered. They're despised in their culture. Uh, they're cowed. They, they may be tempted to, to hide away or, or give up. And Peter wants them to stand tall. He wants them to hold their head up. He wants them to live for Jesus with confidence. And so he says four things. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession. Four things about being the people of God. A chosen people. This phrase is taken from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43. God had spoken through the prophet and talked about a future time and said, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. See, God promises here, 800 years before Jesus, that he will do a new thing, and that new thing is forming a people for himself. Now, the word people can also be translated race 
as in the human race. And so it means a people group who descended from a shared common lineage. This means that Christians are a new race among humankind, descended from a common lineage, Jesus. Now that is a radical claim, if you think about it. I wonder how, if you were asked uh, to describe yourself, if you would have said anything like this, well, I'm Nigerian, or I'm Chinese, or I'm Romanian, or I'm British. Peter says, if you belong to Jesus, you are a Christian. You're part of a new race, and that's primary. That's more important than your other ethnic identity. So that means that if you're a Christian and part of this chosen people, this race, you have more in common with another Christian than you do with a non-believing person from the same ethnic background. Are you with me? You have more in common with another Christian from, another, from a different nationality than you do with a non-believing person from the same ethnic background. The Christian, no matter where they're from, Americas, Asia, Australasia, Europe, wherever in the world they're from, they, they are your brother and sister, more than a non-Christian from your own tribal group, even someone from your own family. That's how radical it is to belong to the chosen people of God. Secondly, he says we're a royal priesthood. Now this phrase comes from the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, the book that tells the marvelous story of how God rescued a slave people and brought them out from their oppressors with uh, marvelous signs and wonders and delivered them and brought them through the Red Sea and brought them through the desert to Mount Sinai. And Peter now reaches back historically to that time of the Exodus from Egypt and he draws from the, the language, the key language that constituted Israel as God's people, Exodus 19 verse 6. And he says, you Christians are a royal priesthood. And this is a magnificent title. Magnificent. See, the priests were a very special group, privileged group. You couldn't apply to join the priesthood. Okay, there were no, it was not a, an equal opportunities employment process. You couldn't send your CV in and go for an interview. You were either in the priesthood or not in Israel. And they had an amazing role they got to serve God full time. They were holy. They were set apart. They had special access to God, special privileges. And they, they represented God to the people. They brought the people's offerings to God. They cared for the people. These were the priests. And now Peter says, all these things are true of every single Christian. You're a priest. You go into the presence of God. You represent other people before God, praying for them. You care for people in God's name. Now, why a royal priesthood? It's because Christians are serving the king of kings. I wonder if you've ever picked up a product, maybe a bottle of sauce or some cheese or some ketchup, and you've seen a product label that has a little crown on it, and it says, by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen. You ever seen those? They got it on mustard. They got it on all sorts of things. Now, that little symbol means that the company has what's called a royal warrant 
of appointment. And these things are a mark of recognition that these companies have supplied goods and services to the royal households for more than five years, and they have an ongoing special relationship. Royal warrants are highly prized. There's only a limited number of them. Cadbury, UK, are appointed cocoa and chocolate manufacturers to Her Majesty the Queen. You know what that really means? The Queen gets free chocolate. <laughs> Kellogg's are purveyors of cereals to Her Majesty the Queen. So the Queen gets free cereal as well. But Peter here can top all that. Forget the royal warrants. He says, every Christian is a priest serving the, his royal highness, the king of kings. That's a privilege. Now, those of you from a Catholic background, you may be surprised that myself, Dan, Jez, who spoke here a bit earlier, we're pastors. We're never, ever called priests at this church. We're not called priests. So who are the priests? Every single Christian. Every single Christian is a royal priest. You may have heard some of you of the phrase, the priesthood of all believers. This is where it comes from. I wonder if you think of yourself like that. Chosen people, royal priesthood. Thirdly, he says, you are a holy nation. Now, here's this idea of holiness, which means, has kind of two, two sides to it. On the one hand, it's being specially distinguished and set apart for a special task and purpose. On the other hand, it means absolute moral purity. And those two things go together. Holiness. But this time, it's in the context of being a nation, a holy nation. This means that when you become a Christian, you change your passport. You're no longer just a citizen of the UK or of China or of Nigeria. You have changed your status officially. You now have dual citizenship. You have your old passport, but you now belong to the Jesus nation, the kingdom of heaven. And that passport is the one that never expires. Now, this was a dangerous thing to say in the first century. Really dangerous. Christians in the first century were persecuted. But guess what? They weren't persecuted because they worshipped Jesus. No. It was not really a problem in a context where everybody worshipped lots of gods. So who cares about one more god if his name is Jesus? No, they were persecuted because they said that Jesus is the only true Lord. The only true God to be worshipped. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Now, this was an exclusive allegiance, and it was reckoned to make them bad citizens of the empire. That's why they were persecuted. They had to believe that they were a holy nation and that membership in Jesus' kingdom would last longer than membership in Caesar's kingdom. And that was what put strength and steel in their backbone. Do you think of yourself like this, friends? that your primary identity is as a follower of Jesus, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And fourthly, he says you are God's special possession. Can't find it. Verse 9, God's special possession. Now, we know that everything in the world, everything in the universe belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Every single thing belongs to God. The cattle on a thousand hills. That's a lot of stake, as Martin Luther King said. But God said that the Israelites were the one people in the world that he chose to belong to him. They had a special, unique relationship. God loved them in, a, in a, an exclusive way. 
God actually described it, describes himself in the Old Testament as like a jealous, intensely passionate husband. He's mad about Israel. And he won't contend with any other suitors. He, he also talks about himself as like an adoptive parent. That he chose them specially for himself, like a dearly loved adopted child. I chose you, he said. I, I made you mine. He was their God. They were his people. And so they were to live for him and make his glory known and his beauty known among the nations. They were the most privileged people group on earth. And now Peter takes that same language, that exact same language, God's special possession, and he applies it to the Christian church. That means you, if you trust in Christ, you are God's special possession. Do you know what he paid for you? What did it cost God to buy you? You know the answer. Peter says earlier on, you were not bought with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus went intentionally to the cross of agony and shame to ransom you. That means to buy you back from slavery, to free you to rescue you, to deliver you, so that you could become a child of God, his special possession. So how precious do you think that you are to the living God, brothers and sisters? If he paid that much for you, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, could there be anything more precious to God than than his own son's blood? How precious you are. I think you need to hear that. And some of you need to know it deeply and make, ask God to make it real to your heart and your experience this week. You're a special possession. So Peter takes these four descriptions from ancient Israel and he applies them all to the church. And he says, you, you now belong to God. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You, you belong to God and you belong together. The church is the people of God. That's our identity. A marvelous fourfold description with great dignity. And we need to, to train ourselves to think like this. This is who I am now. I'm a member of the people of God. Because if you know who that's who you are, you can withstand temptation. If you know who that's who you are, you have a, another weapon against anxiety and against depression. If you know who that's who you are, you can withstand the shame and humiliation that comes from being associated with Jesus. If you know who that's who you are, then you are now part of God's strategy to heal a wounded world. What is the main point of these descriptions? To get people who are tempted to compromise and hide, to stand up and walk tall. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am to hold their heads up high, to live with confidence. But notice, right after that that set of identity descriptions, what Peter follows straight in with, and have a look at your Bible again at verse 11, he immediately uses this this very affectionate term, dear friends. Then he he gives them an urging command. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
You see, God never blesses us for ourselves only. God blesses us so that we can serve the world. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. And you find this is the theme all the way through the Bible. When God calls Abraham, Genesis chapter 11 and 12, uh, he calls him and he says, I'm going to do all these great things for you, Abraham. I'm going to give you a great name. And from you is going to come an amazing great nation. I'm going to protect you. I'll be there for you. So that in you, every family on earth will be blessed. So the purpose of God blessing you, Christian, is actually to bless your neighbors, your colleagues, your family, your friends, your community. God's people have been called in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And Peter immediately says, you're a chosen people, so you must declare his praises. Declare his praises. Look again at verse 9. Um, your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. There's the first thing we must do, Christian friends, is to declare the praises of Jesus. But what does it look like? Now, early on in his Christian life, C.S. Lewis, who's a a famous academic and author, he struggled with the idea that God would demand our praise and that God would, would want glory. It seemed strange to him. Why does God need glory from us? But then he realized that this was a kind of a stumbling block, was due to his misunderstanding of what praise really is. And he wrote in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, this, these words, the most obvious thing, sorry, the most obvious fact about praise whether praise of God or praise of anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of giving a compliment or approval or giving of honor. I never noticed, listen to this, I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Whatever you enjoy, it actually overflows into praise. Lewis says, the world rings with praise. Just pause and you can hear it. Someone's praising something out there. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather. Praise of wine. Food, actors, cars, horses, colleges, countries, historical people, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even, he says sometimes, politicians or scholars. He said, I'd not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praise the most. I'd not noticed that just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join in with them. Isn't she lovely? We were listening to Stevie Wonder last night in our house. Isn't she lovely? It's praise overflowing. Isn't, wasn't that glorious? Don't you think that was fantastic? We've spontaneously burst out in praise. And the Bible writers do this about God. Psalm 71, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, your deeds of salvation all day long, for their number is past my knowledge. 
Psalm 73, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Psalm 79, we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Psalm 107, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. You see what they're all doing. All these voices are just singing and talking about the wonderful things that God has done for me and for my people and how wonderful God is. Wow. Now, I know this is hard for British people. You Africans, you don't have a problem with this. Have pity on us, British people. So I want to speak to, to British Christians for a moment. I know it's hard for you to speak praise about God. I know. You don't feel you've got permission. Some of you think, well, maybe I'm just called to be a silent witness, living a good life, and only speak about God when I'm asked about it deliberately at point-blank range. <laughs> Once every five or ten years. <laughs> According to this, we're supposed to declare his praises. Speaking about God once every five or ten years is probably not that it, is it? Now, there are some of us red-hot, zealous, super-keen Christians who see it as their, God, their job to convert people. Not just to be fishers of men, but also to catch and clean them. Now, this was parodied in a comedy series a number of years ago called The Fast Show. And in this embarrassing set of sketches, an earnest born-again Christian seized on an inappropriate moment to talk about Jesus. So they would be at a party talking about something, and they would suddenly blurt out, yeah, but Jesus died for all our sins, didn't he? And then the conversation would just die. <laughs> now, the writers of the Fast Show were very shrewd observers of life, and they put their finger on something very awkward there. It was a lack of connection that the Christians had with the people they were talking to, and kind of a forcing of a conversation. And, you know, people can spot when, when uh, someone's trying to sell you something. They can spot a leading conversation. And I don't like it when someone tries to control me through conversation. And I bet you don't either. You don't want someone to force their point of view. Peter is not saying, do that. Okay? I want to free you from the awkwardness of that. Peter is saying, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. You were an, a stranger, an alien, an abandoned, isolated person. Now you're the people of God. You're loved and adopted and welcomed in his family. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Now that means we can take natural opportunities to talk about the things we love. I think you can do that, friends. Can you find a way to talk about Jesus? Do you enjoy being part of the people of God? I know church can be a pain in the neck. I know it can. But is, are there things you can talk about with genuine enthusiasm? Can you share about things you love about our church? Uh, how there's space for loads of different kinds of people, like no other group? I always tell people about Grace Church, you know, I love it because it's international. I love its diversity. There's over 25 different nationalities in our church, all sorts of different cultures. And I say, we're trying to serve the local communities where we live. 
Give examples of that, things that people in the church do. People who clean up Old Moat Park, they don't get paid for it. People who run a community choir in Fallowfield. People who, for free, help to teach migrant people English. People who collect food and go and take it to the food bank and make hampers for them at Christmas. Just to serve. I, I love that about our church. And we love eating together, as you can see. We love reading the Bible. We find it explains life. We can find some things to declare praises, I think. Now look, Peter also says, now you have received mercy. Was there a point in your life where you realized that you had offended the most majestic being in the universe and you turned to him and asked for forgiveness only to find out that he'd already forgiven you long ago? Was there a time in your life where you sinned and you felt absolutely awful and then you realized that the love of God is so deep it has no limits? Was there a time in your life when you realized God knows everything about you, every thought, word and deed, every motive, everything you've ever done, yet he loves you just the same because of his mercy? Was there a time in your life where Jesus Christ became extraordinarily precious to you so that you love to hear his name and sing about him. I know there was because I heard you singing earlier on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Was there a time when you looked at the cross in your mind's eye and you thought he gave his life for me? Now you have received mercy. So if we've discovered that, then when it's right, we can declare his praises, can't we? We can talk about how great Jesus is. We were called to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a special possession of God so that we may declare his praises. Once we were homeless, now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received such mercy. Christian friends, brothers and sisters, you are the chosen people of God, absolutely precious to him. So, so let's declare his praises. And finally, thirdly, we are to live conspicuously good lives. Look at uh, chapter 2 again, verse 11. Dear friends, says Peter, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What is a conspicuously good life? There are two aspects here. Uh, abstinence and excellence. Abstinence, abstain, he says, from sinful desires. And the word here in the Greek language means an over-the-top, inordinate desire for something. And usually it's, it's a desire for something good in and of itself, but a desire that makes that good thing into an ultimate thing. And then it becomes a bad thing. It's not a, a wrong thing to desire possessions. But when your possessions, your clothes, your, your technology, your home, your car become the thing you're living for, that now has become an inordinate desire. And he says, abstain from that. Do whatever it takes to stop living for your stuff. Sexual desires are God-given. 
and in the right context are beautiful for cementing marriage as a joyful union and for procreating children. But outside of God's boundaries, or when sexual desire becomes an inordinate thing that people live for, they become sinful. Addiction to physical pleasures such as food and drink, good gifts from God. But when your God is your belly, you're in trouble. And the right desires for acceptance, for approval, for comfort, these are all good things. But when we begin to live for them, to live for other people's approval of me, that's an inordinate desire that will destroy you. Abstain from these sins. Peter says, interestingly, that sin is self-harming. Look at it again. These sinful desires wage war against your soul. So when you sin, you are entering into warfare against yourself. Sin is the worst way you can hurt yourself. I never knew a Christian person who, who indulged in a particular sin and then afterwards thought, that was great. I wish I, I don't know why I don't do that more often. It never, it never ever feels like that the morning after. Abstain from it, he says. Don't you see it? It's like you're cutting yourself. Sin always injures you. So don't entertain it. Don't excuse it. Don't indulge it. Don't give it an inch. Abstain. Cut it off. Because it will hurt you. So sin is stupid. Isn't it? Don't do it. And, and this is not just to us as isolated individuals. It's us to us as a community. Help one another not to sin. I was so encouraged. Uh, we had a, a message here a few weeks ago, very challenging, about David and Bathsheba and temptation and so on. And I heard about a life group. I don't know any of the names, by the way, of what, or any, any of the details. I just heard that one group separated into men and women and people confessed things together and really helped each other to deal with those things. That's what it's about. Abstain corporately. But Peter doesn't end there, because that would kind of be a bit of a, a, a negative note to end on. He ends with excellence. He says, live such good lives. Good lives. And that word good can be translated noble. A noble life. Peace. A praiseworthy, beautiful life. Is your life good? Noble. Does it have a beautiful impact on other people? If you left your job tomorrow, would People notice. What would they notice had changed about the workplace? What would they miss about you? If you left your college course at university, what would they notice had gone with you? If you moved house, would the neighbors notice? What would they miss about you? Peter says these pagans, among the pagans, that means the, 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 the uh, non-believing people around, they actually see the Christians' lives. And actually, they see that it's good, and they want to be part of that. If Grace Church Manchester closed down this week, who would notice? Apart from the members. There's a challenge. What difference do we make to Manchester? So what is a church? First answer, the people of God. We're the people of God. Chosen people, royal priesthood. God's special possession. Now, as I close, just notice again the emphasis for Peter is on the people of God, not the individuals. All the commands in here are plural. 
And I just thought about an encounter I had in Russia near our church office recently. I went to a restaurant called Jaffa, great lunch place. And Jaffa's run by some men. Uh, I just thought of them as Arabic men. I didn't know where they were from. But I went in there one time and I saw two men sitting right by the window who actually run a shop called the Family Food Market, which is near our house in West Didsbury. And these two guys were in there at lunchtime. I, and I, th- these guys work from about 7 in the morning till 9 at night. You know, they never stop. So I was really surprised to see them in there having lunch at Jaffa. And I went over and said, hey, great, great to see you. Um, what are you doing up here? My office is just here. And they said, oh, we love this place. Because these are our people. And we're Kurds. You know, the Kurdish people, I believe I'm right in saying, is the largest people group that doesn't have its own land. They talk about Kurdistan. It's not actually a geopolitical reality, but it is real in their hearts and minds. They have their own language. In fact, there's more than one branch of Kurdish. They have their own people. They have their own food. And my, it is good food. So they came all the way up on their lunch break from West Didsbury to eat at Jaffa because these are our people. And I just want to encourage us to cultivate that mindset with our church family. These are my people, my people here, the chosen people of God, to declare his praises and live conspicuously good lives. Let's pray. Lord, uh, you are great and glorious, and when we see something of your plans for this world and how that's realized through the church, we can scarcely believe it because the church so often seems so weak and so flawed that it would almost be ridiculous to think that it could do anything if you had not said so. So we ask that you would use these Bible truths and this series to change our minds about the church and to cause us to love your church as something like you do and to make it as precious to us as it is to you. And thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the church. Amen.